So welcome to the February-March Forecast Direct podcast. And today we are welcoming uh, Jane Olmsted-Rumsey and uh, Titan Alan to the Forecast Direct podcast. Uh, Titan is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, our sister institution uh, down the coast. And uh, Jane is currently at Northwestern University and will be going to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank uh, next year and following that to LSE. Uh, they have done some research that uh, we're going to talk about, and this research has been joint with Matthias Dopke and uh, Michelle uh, Tertelt, uh, and it has been looking at the differential impacts of this pandemic uh, with respect to gender. So it's something that we want to really kind of dive into and understand and, you know, see what policy implications, you know, what does this mean? Uh, so uh, again, thank you. You both of you for joining the Forecast Direct podcast. I'd like to just start out with kind of the big picture. Uh, you know, we, we're in the middle of a pandemic uh, and we've got a recession that was induced by the pandemic, uh, but uh, on, on two levels. One is people want to be safe, so they pulled back demand, and the other is public health interventions, but it's a recession, it's idle capital and idle labor. Uh, how is this recession different from the other 11 recent recessions, recent being sort of post-World War II? Uh, what, you know, what is going on here that has led to your research as uh, into this recession as being something different? Uh, who would like to start out? Jane, do you want to begin? Sure, I can, I can start out and then Titan, feel free to jump in. So we think that one of the most important differences is the gender dimension. And this shows up basically for two reasons. So one is the sectors that have been affected in this recession compared to previous recessions. The fact that most previous recessions have been concentrated in sectors like construction and manufacturing, which are very male dominated. And so this meant that in the past, the volatility of women's employment was very low compared to the volatility of men's employment. But the pandemic recession is very different because the pandemic recession has been generated by things like lockdowns and social distancing, which have affected sectors more like services, hospitality, um, and even the healthcare sector itself. And these, these sectors tend to be more female dominated. So one reason why the pandemic recession has hit women harder than men is that the sort of the sectors that they work in. And then the other important dimension is school and daycare closures. The fact that um, the pandemic again has necessitated um, parents to take on much more childcare than they have in the past. Some of that childcare has been done by the market, essentially buying daycare or sending your kids to school. Um, and this has also affected women more than men because women tend to bear a disproportionate share of childcare within married couples. And there are many more single mothers than single fathers in the US. So both of these two factors have significantly affected women. So, so we've got a gender differential that's really different this time. It's really, it's really the opposite of what we've seen before. I think what we've seen in all, all the last recessions that you've referred to. Uh, so, so that, you know, that leads to kind of two questions. One uh, has to do with schools. So the schools are closed, but there's a lot of pressure to open up schools here in California. Schools are beginning to open up uh, vaccinations rolling out and, and the like. And we're seeing even in the largest school district, LAUSD, 
the beginnings of the opening up and that was kind of one of the districts that was mo most reticent. Uh, so is this just a temporary phenomenon that, uh, uh, you know, that the burden has fallen more on women than men while schools were closed, but shortly we'll go back to, shortly being maybe next year, we'll go back to normal uh, with the usual daycare and schools. And, uh, and so that will be just a blip or is there something a little more fundamental going on that's gonna change uh, gender roles and gender participation in, uh, in the labor force? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. Um, I, I'll say that I think that there's pretty good reason to believe that what we're seeing are the long-term consequences of the school closures are going to persist far beyond uh, the date of reopening. And you know, it's kind of a multifaceted thing as to why, why it would occur. Part of it is what economists have traditionally called the scarring effect. And so as long as school, the longer schools are closed and the longer that we see then women falling out of the workforce to kind of deal with these extra childcare dimensions, the less and less likely it's going to be that they re-enter the workforce or when they do re-enter the workforce that they're able to do so at a level that gives them the same responsibility uh, and professional stature that they had before the crisis. And so there is this kind of long-term scarring effect of this current recession that's been really exacerbated by, for women uh, because of the way the uh, school closures have affected women differently from, from men. And so in that sense, we think like the, the sooner we open, the sooner, the sooner we reopen schools, probably the less severe the long-term consequences will be, but kind of the more persistent, the longer schools stay closed, the longer we expect to see these, uh, these scarring effects on women that will persist potentially if our simulations are to be believed for up to a decade. So, so uh, in your research and you're thinking about this, uh, is there anything on the employer side vis-a-vis -vis the way in which employers view uh, potential women employees as opposed to male employees because of this? I mean, I think, I think what we've known from past research is that there was always a little bit of a, uh, a female penalty uh, from the view of employers often associated uh, with anticipated childcare. So there, there's a story that is circulated in the literature that women tend to be promoted less often uh, or receive sort of uh, um, uh, professional responsibilities less often because there's concern that if they at some point in the future become mothers, they will step back from the career and there'll be a loss to the enterprise. And I, I think one of the really big questions about this current crisis is when we see this sort of unprecedented demand on women's times and this unprecedented uh, constraints that they face in, in balancing professional and personal, say, caregiving responsibilities, how employers react both in terms of accommodating that and how they perceive that affecting the future productivity of their female workforce is probably to us one of the core issues uh, of what's going to determine the long-term consequences of this, uh, this pandemic. I do want to just add kind of one note of optimism to this also related to the employer side. One thing we talk about as a potential sort of silver lining of the pandemic for women is hopefully a sort of permanent shift in the fraction of, of workers in the US who can work from home. We know that women who have the option to telecommute have a higher rate of labor force participation than those who can't. And so if employers are willing to adopt sort of some of the flexible work arrangements that they've been using during the pandemic and allow employees to telecommute, that could actually potentially in the very long run have a positive effect on women's labor force participation and also um, wages for women. Mm -hmm. 
So if they see productivity gains by being able to offer flexible work schedules and bringing in uh, skilled female employees, that improves firm productivity, but also opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a sense, a lot of these sort of flexible work arrangements are a fixed cost. Like we all learned how to work on Zoom. Employers have um, invested a lot in these technologies that allow workers to work from home. And so now those are in place, kind of, um, we're hoping that they're gonna persist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in the, our last forecast direct, we, you know, we talked with uh, Robert Gordon about productivity gains. And, uh, and I think one of the things you're saying is that the pandemic, at least in this sense, has really advanced what was going to happen anyway, but because it forced us to use these technologies. Would that be a fair statement? That's exactly right. I think that is a fair statement. There's a joke that you sometimes hear that uh, COVID-19 was more transformative to companies' innovation and technology practice than many of their uh, chief technology officers in the last year. And so I, I really think that there's something to that, that mu much of this telecommuting that was born of necessity is sort of here to stay, much like other big technological transformations that we've seen in the labor force, say after World War II, also kind of persisted for long periods. Once, once people, once employers, once workers sort of realized this was really in the interest of everybody. And I think we really believe that telecommuting kind of falls into this category. This will become part of the new normal and one that benefits workers, women, and employers. Right, and you know, we economists like data and like historical data, and although we don't have time series data on it, if we look back at pandemics through history, they are transformative in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and another aspect of that that uh, I'd like to ask you about, which appears in your research, has to do with some of the occupations that women occupy, that women have, uh, which have been affected in the opposite direction, such as, as doctors and nurses and, uh, and as grocery clerks and the like. Uh, what, you know, what are you seeing with respect to that? That seems to go in, the, in exactly the opposite direction, that there's more demand for their services and they've become more valuable. I think that's right. Um, we also, in our research, look at how this might affect married couples. So we identify around 10% of, of couples where um, the woman in the couple, so these are straight couples, the woman in the couple um, is in a, an essential occupation, but her husband can um, is not or is able to work from home. And for these couples, we see potentially a big shift in sort of the division of childcare and housework within the couple. So the man in the couple is now at home, often caring for kids, and the woman is in, a, in an essential occupation where she has to go to work every day. And so another silver lining from the pandemic might be kind of a, a, a significant fraction of couples, this 10% of couples where the father becomes the primary childcare provider for the first time. And so this might actually kind of shake up the way that our society views kind of the traditional division of childcare, because as I mentioned before, in most married couples, the the woman is the primary childcare uh, provider. So, so this is not in your research, but it leads to, I think, an important question. There have been a number of studies of essays and the like about uh, the disintegration of working class families. And one of the causes uh, attributed to that 
has been the fact that recent recessions have been, as you pointed out in the, in the outset, have been dominated by unemployment by males. And, and so there's a, you know, a certain emasculation in the, in, in the household and a, a feeling of a lack of self-worth worth on the part of the males and, and you get this crumbling of the family structure. Uh, any speculation, and I know we don't have data on it and it's not part of your research, but it'd be interesting uh, to speculate on whether this might turn that around. So yeah, I, I think I think that's a really, really great question. I, I would say that if I were to speculate, I would say that I do think we're standing on the precipice of maybe a transformative moment in terms of um, gender roles and the way breadwinning is perceived within the household as being associated with either a masculine or a feminine trait. I mean, of course, we're kind of riding a very long historical wave that has been moving in this direction. And so it's not like the current crisis is uh, in some sense pushing against the headwinds of history. I do think though, just from you know, reflecting on my own experiences, one thing that was very interesting about the current crisis is the sort of uh, public eye or, or how much uh, father caregiving or father parental uh, caregiving has kind of figured in the public eye. So I remember during the crisis, you know, looking at Twitter and seeing all these pictures of famous what you would maybe describe as like very masculine uh, public figures like Idris Elba, you know, playing with his daughter while he's working, talking about the joys of mixing fatherhood and, uh, and professional obligations. And I think that really is gonna do a lot, you know, especially from, from people like him, but really more broadly, uh, the public in general, to push us more toward this more equal, um, what's the word, uh, e equal expectations of uh, gender, gendered caregiving that's really going to, as I said, accelerate the kind of trends that you're talking about, um, or at least you say accelerate their demise maybe. So that has policy implications for uh, government labor market policy and, and work rules. Yeah, I, I do believe so, yeah. Um, let's turn to, to something else, which is a long-term trend. And what we've been talking about all through this conversation is how the pandemic has been accelerating some long-term trends, and that's the drop in fertility. So worldwide, we've seen a drop in fertility, uh, but you know, projections are that uh, that even though we've been all sheltering in place and staying home, fertility rates are dropping like a rock now. That the Brookings Institution had a forecast that there will be three hundred thousand fewer births in the U.S. In Japan, the percentage drop is in double digits, and Japan was already, uh, you know, in a on, on a trend line of losing population and shrinking population. Uh, any thoughts based on uh, your research or speculation as to what happens after we get vaccinated and the pandemic's in the rearview mirror? Do these fertility rates stay down or? Uh, and, and is this something that has been accelerated or, or just a function of, uh, of the pandemic and uh, fears of childbirth during the pandemic? So I, I think it's, it's probably not surprising that birth rates have fallen the way that they have, you know, that the pandemic is not exactly putting people in the mood. Um, we also kind of know from a long, a long literature on the topic of fertility that in times of uncertainty, in times of economic hardship, uh, fertility rates tend to fall. We're currently living through an unprecedented, uh, uh, uncer unprecedentedly uncertain times, unprecedentedly difficult times economically. So it's, it's really not at all surprising to us that fertility has fallen as much as it has. 
Historically, we've also seen really big rebounds after uncertainty is resolved, economic conditions improve, sometimes even an overcorrection where people who deferred having children now suddenly decide to do it. And we saw that after World War II and, and after some other major economic calamities. I think there's a little bit of a question, given the severity of what we went through, um, how much of a bounce back we can really expect here. And uh, I think, and I'm speaking partially for Jane and the other co-authors, I think our kind of view is that it's going to depend a little bit on what the new normal looks like. If the new normal that comes after the pandemic is one where there's a greater extent of telecommuting, where there are gender norms that are more sympathetic to the equal split of childcare and caregiving responsibilities between men and women, then we think really there, there's, there's a fertile ground for a big bounce back in fertility. Uh, and that's something that maybe will last or even accelerate, uh, or, or I should say reverse long-term trends going in the opposite direction. Of course, if there is a re-entrenchment, a kind of return to the status quo, then you can imagine that there are these long-term psychological overhangs uh, of the current crisis, the particular uh, constraints that people with children face, the, the particular professional sacrifices that women had to make that may dissuade them from having that second kid or that third child. And so kind of just to summarize, it's a, really, it's a really big issue, but we really think this is a place where policy is going to matter, both from the government and from companies in terms of shaping what the new normal looks like and what it means to be a mother and working in the new normal. So if the penalty for childcare actually increases and has increased due to the pandemic, yeah. uh, I think what you all are saying is we can expect fertility rates maybe to come up, but not back to trend. And yeah, I think that's right. And so the issue of declining populations becomes uh, more severe, e even more severe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so that um, leads me to asking about uh, what you know. Does um, what does your research tell us about the shape of the coming recovery? This is an interesting challenge from the perspective of a macroeconomist, because in a sense, it's hard to learn from recoveries from previous recessions because we know that this one looks so different. Um, one aspect that's that's obviously very unique to this recession is that the, the path of the recovery is gonna depend a lot on school and daycare reopenings. As we talked about earlier, there's a lot of pressure now to get schools open so that parents can return to work. And indeed in our um, kind of modeling exercise that we do in our research, we show that the recovery um, from a macroeconomic standpoint really crucially depends on when we can reopen um, schools and daycares. Um, the, the other aspect that's kind of unique is sort of, again, going back to this sectoral composition argument, the fact that previous recessions have been often driven by some sort of fundamental in the economy that caused there to be a recession. This one is was caused by something that's quite orthogonal to everything else that's happening in the economy. So I have some optimism as a macroeconomist that this recovery can be faster just because kind of these sectors can be turned back on easily and we don't need to have this reallocation of labor, um, you know, that we've seen following previous recessions. Mm -hmm. So to what, to what extent does policy need to be, um, if not gender specific, gender aware to speed the recovery? So the school and daycare reopenings is one important piece. Another thing we show in our research is that 
families with children are going to be particularly constrained in their spending. Um, and so things, policies like um, tax credits for families with children can have this sort of demand generating effect. And so stimulus targeted at, at um, adults with children can be particularly effective in this recession because we know that families with children are often having to cut back their labor supply. And so their income may have dropped by more than people um, without children. Yeah, okay. I, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanna add, add a little bit to that. I, I completely kind of uh, agree with everything Jane said. I, I will say that the one thing that's very unusual about this current crisis is that it's really been triggered more uh, conscientiously by policies like lockdown policies that sought to basically shut down the economy to protect public health. That's very different from what we saw like in, in the Great Recession where there was a big, the, the bust of a big debt bubble that took kind of a, a decade to unwind and deleverage. And so I think we have the view that the potential for a very quick rebound uh, from a crisis that was largely caused by public policies that conscientiously shut down the economy is really there. It's really possible to have a very robust uh, uh, recovery. However, as Jane kind of said, the, the kind of economic uh, constraints that we see on the economy are really related to childcare and female labor force participation. And until those are kind of addressed, we're never gonna get back to 100%. You know, you can end the lockdowns, but if the schools are still closed, mothers are still not gonna be working, consumption will be lower, household income will be lower, and so more than kind of any crisis we've been in before, there's this kind of very strange policy lever that a lot really hinges on when schools open. And I don't think we've ever been in a recession when you have macroeconomists talking about the most important thing or one of the most important things for the recovery is whether daycare is available. You know, and that's kind of the strange situation I think we find ourselves in now. And what we've tried to advocate is for public policy figures to really be aware of that and to understand just how important this is from a macroeconomic perspective not just a kind of social or even moral uh, standpoint. Right, I mean, one of the things that we see in the employment data is that the sector, uh, healthcare and social services has actually experienced a decline in payroll employment. Mm -hmm. And you would think that in a pandemic that it would actually grow, but that decline is heavily centered in daycare, which is part of that sector. Mm, there you go. So you can, this is, it's, it's, not, it's not even a theory. It's really something that's very clear in the data is, is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, it's very, it's, it's very clear in the data. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, as we're coming to the end of our discussion, uh, we've been talking about the US. I know, you know, one of your co-authors is located in Europe. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've had uh, discussions about how your research, which is US centric, mm -hmm. is applicable to other countries, both developed and, and developing countries. What are your thoughts about that? Listen, Jane, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, developed maybe and I can talk about developing or? Sure, sure. Um, so Titan is actually working on a, a follow-up paper that looks specifically sort of at the global impact that I'm not involved with. So he's, he's better equipped to talk about this, but I can talk more anecdotally about our, our conversations with our co-author in Germany. So one thing we saw early in the pandemic is that many, basically all other developed countries had more generous parental leave policies and also sort of um, a different system for stemming potential job losses early in the crisis. So um, these other countries with more generous parental leave allowed um, parents to take leave when their kids were out of school because of, um, because of school and daycare closures. But then they also have Germany, for example, has a system that basically um, 
is like a payroll subsidy to preserve links between employees and employers. Whereas in the US, we rely on unemployment insurance. So we basically saw employees getting laid off and then receiving this benefit from the government. Whereas the European system is more to actually subsidize directly this relationship between employees and employers. And so the rise in unemployment, both for men and women in Europe was much lower than it was um, in the US, but we still did see a, a gender differential. So even in Europe, the rise in the unemployment rate for women was, was much higher than it was for men. So we kind of see similar patterns in developed countries, but, but perhaps less dramatic than what we've seen in the US just because of sort of uh, policy differences in the unemployment schemes. So all of these issues translate to other developed countries uh, pretty readily with some structural differences in their labor markets. That's right. Many of these features sort of about the gender composition of different occupations are sort of empirically regular across most developed countries. But um, there are some differences in, in sort of gender norms and parental leave policies in Scandinavian countries, for example, men tend to be more invi involved in childcare. And so in those countries, again, you might see a, a slightly smaller effect than what you've seen in the US basically based on changes in differences in gender norms. Right, that's an interesting comment. When I was uh, traveling on vacation actually in Scandinavia uh, and, and just uh, randomly talking uh, with folks, uh, they thought that that was an important part of labor market policy that actually as a, a matter of government policy, uh, the men and women are treated much more equally mm -hmm. in, uh, in the labor force by firms. It's mandated by, by policy. Mm -hmm. And so yes, you would expect that to mitigate uh, the gender differentials that you all have been talking about. That's right. And, and, and actually, some of those policies have been put in place, I think, to address this fertility, declining fertility issue that we were talking about earlier. So the, the view is that the more you can involve fathers in childcare, the more willing women are going to be to have more kids. Um, and so that should be part of our discussion about declining fertility as well as sort of the generosity of uh, parental leave. Yeah, I mean, this is off topic, but, but interesting. Um, Scandinavian fertility rates are actually higher than elsewhere yes. in Europe. And, and, That's right. And it's attributed directly to that. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, That's right. they, they often That's say right. these policies, the same for Germany, by the way, and in many mm -hmm. continental European countries. That's right. Right. And, and, and Titan, what, what about developing countries? I and mean, we've seen Brazil and India. That's really ravaged. Very large countries hit quite hard by the pandemic. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, kind of building off what Jane was saying, you know, if we look at other developed countries, and we try to compare experiences, it's really a story of, um, you know, the developed countries all kind of faced the same risks, maybe a priori, but had very different policies in place or very different policy responses uh, to tackle the virus. When we look at developing versus developed countries, the picture is very different because they started in a very different place in terms of the risks and threats posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, in kind of other work that I've done with, with some co-authors, one thing that we found very interesting is that because of their younger populations, many developing countries did not really face the same public health risks that uh, rich world countries faced. Just to give you an extent of, of how big these differences are, in most rich countries, the median age is around 45. And COVID-19 uh, uh, health risks really begin to pick up over age 60. In many developing countries, the median age is around 20 years old. 
and the share of the population over 65 is around two or three percent. And so just the, the number of people in society that are vulnerable to getting sick, getting seriously sick or, or dying from the disease is much, much smaller in developing countries. And so we thought this might give them a sort of natural uh, protection, natural immunity to the pandemic and its uh, severe effects. But as the crisis kind of unfolded, we saw that really it seems that the opposite is happening. And really the reason is, is why they may have been sort of uh, more prepared for the, uh, the public health aspects of the current crisis just because of demographics, they were really much more constrained in their ability to mount public policy responses. So they, they really didn't have the same ability to institute these massive transfer programs that we saw in many developed countries to keep people at home and to keep people fed and away from work in public places. Um, there also was huge shortages of ICU beds and PPE. And now even as the sort of crisis is slowly waning and we're getting into vaccinations, we hear stories that there are massive shortages of uh, vaccines in many of these uh, developing countries. And so if I were to kind of wrap it up all, all together, I would say the story for developing countries is really one of countervailing forces. And I think as the data becomes increasingly clear, we're gonna see a lot of heterogeneity. Some countries did very well. Uh, other countries are going to have experienced uh, outcomes that are probably much worse than what we've seen in the developing world. At the moment, it's kind of hard to pin things down just because the data is really not that reliable for many developing countries. There have been some studies that say mortality rates coming out of Brazil and India are like 10% of what the actual numbers should be. And already the numbers we're seeing are very worrying. And so I think things will become increasingly clear of just how different this pandemic has been in developing and developed countries. But I think there's gonna be a lot of lessons to be learned, you know, because of course pandemics are by their nature cross country phenomenon. And so trying to see what some countries did right, what some countries did wrong, and to learn lessons from the future, I think is gonna be a big research agenda following, uh, following the recovery. Uh, are you seeing in your research a gender differential in the same way that you saw in the US? Fascinating, so it's something that we're trying to look into. At the moment, we don't really have the data to say things conclusively. You know, one reason we think we might not see it is that despite the fact that there are so many more children in the developing world, there's also a much higher prevalence of intergenerational households. So when people live, it's not the core family, like in the United States, where if the child is home, the mother has to stay home to take care of the child. Typically in developing countries, we see two, three, sometimes even four generations, you know, cousins all living in the same household. So as long as there's kind of like a grandmother or a grandfather, or some extended family member at home to watch the children, uh, the kind of constraints that we've seen on female labor supply in, the wet, in, in developed countries may not actually be as severe. In developing ones. It's something that we're looking into now and we hope to have better answers uh, as data becomes more available. So this uh, daycare and childcare issue, which is huge for the U.S. recovery and for yeah. developing countries, may not be such a big deal for India or for China. Exactly right. Where you have intergenerational families, so you have built-in daycare. Built-in insurance. Daycare center. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, this, again, just kind of highlights the main point, and that even though the pandemic crisis kind of started from the same shock as it was uh, in all these countries, the way, the kind of risks that that entailed, the kind of impact that it had, and the sort of policy responses that it required really vary tremendously uh, across levels of development, or even as, as Jane was sort of highlighting, across countries at the same level of development. And so I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned here uh, economically, uh, in terms of public health, and I think uh, our, our paper and the various other work that both Jane and I are doing is really only scratching the surface of what I think will be a very long research agenda. 
Yeah, this, this is all incredibly interesting and timely because policymakers are, you know, now thinking with the vaccine, you know, what are the post-pandemic policies and yeah. gender differential that you all have explored is an important part of that. Uh, so we've come to the conclusion of our time with Forecast Direct. I wanna thank both of you, Jane and Titan, for joining us today and sharing your research on this incredibly important topic, uh, not just for the economic recovery, but the nature of society going forward. So thank you very much for joining us uh, today on the UCLA Anderson Forecast Direct podcast. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you.